Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're looking at a story today co-written by Christine Platt and Catherine Wigginton Green, exploring the potentials and pitfalls of interracial friendships, and really all friendships with the other. Their book is Rebecca, Not Becky, and it's about the interplay around a black woman in a very white Virginia town. Christine Platt has degrees in African and African-American studies, in addition to her J.D. in general law, and has written a number of books, many for youth, springing from her experience as a black woman. This is Catherine Wigginton Green's first book, springing from her deep exploration of race, including her documentary, I'm Not Racist, Am I?, and the workshops related to it, informed by her experience as a white woman. Together, they provide a story encompassing many of the hopes, fears, struggles, and achievements of having a friendship across differences. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's show. My rich conversation with Christine and Catherine means that there will be bonus excerpts that didn't fit into the 55-minute broadcast, and you can find them at northernspiritradio.org. Christine Platt and Catherine Wigginton-Green join us today from near Washington, D.C. via Zoom. Christine, it's so wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. So happy to be here. And Catherine, welcome so much. I'm glad you're here. I just finished a few days ago, Rebecca, Not Becky, the book you jointly wrote. I understand that this is the first book for you, Catherine. Is that true? Yes. But Christine, I was looking through your lexicon of books. The Afro-Minimalist Guide to Living with Less, that's yours? Yes, that's me. That's one I want to interview you about. (laughs) Let's do it. Partly the thing is, as Quaker, we have this thing called testimony on simplicity. I have a feeling there's some intersection there. Oh, for sure. Anyway, I'm looking forward to that. And all of the other, the kids' books that you've written. Yeah. Are you kid-friendly in general? Very much so. Very much so. And yeah, I'm going to look up this testimony on simplicity. That sounds fascinating. Very much a minimalist. And anything that I can find out about living more simply and really just paring down in in general, I'm always really fascinated by. So I'll definitely look that up. Up front, I'm going to ask both of you about your religious, spiritual background. Usually on my side, I put a line that says, past, present, religious, spiritual influences. And that means both positive and negative, because we get influenced by what burns us as well as which soothes us. Could you tell me a little bit, Christine, what that is for you? What would you list as some of your influences? Were you a Hare Krishna for (laughs) six months? Who knows? No, you know, it's so interesting. Definitely more non-denominational. I was raised in a family that whatever Christian church was nearby, which was where we went. So I feel very comfortable in a Presbyterian church just as much as I do in a Southern Baptist church. So I would say more non-denominational in terms of religion. But I think the older that I've gotten, just really taken 
all of these bits and principles that, you know, there's a lot of the teachings are the same. They're just maybe worded a little differently or, you know, expressed a little differently and really have found a lot of peace in yoga and meditation, right, which is also a form of prayer. And so, yeah, I think I'm just very non-denominational and just very much an acknowledgement that there is a higher power that we don't have all the answers and that perhaps we don't need to have all the answers because if we did, we'd probably ruin it somehow. (laughs) (laughs) And just am respectful of others spiritual practices and, you know, just very mindful of that. And so I I feel like yoga and meditation have really helped shape my whole spirituality and sort of practice in that way. So that's why they got in the book and why Rebecca and Deandrea, how do I say it? Yeah, Deandrea. Okay. I thought there was maybe an Andrea as an Andrea. I don't know. It's an Andrea, but it's spelled Deandrea. And so it's I think, again, that's also something cultural. My middle name is Andrea and spelled Andrea. And so I naturally say DeAndrea. Okay, good. And what about you, Catherine? What are your influences? And again, the reason I ask this is I assume that along the way, having these influences changes how we look at the world, maybe help enculture some of our values that make a difference for us. So what about you, Catherine? I have a couple of responses to that. I like how you frame it as sort of past and present and future. And I was raised Catholic, so Irish Catholic family. I'm the youngest of six kids. My parents had my siblings all in a big cluster. And then I came nine years later after my closest sibling. And so there was almost this whole family that existed together uh, without me before I came along. They were very religious. They followed all the rules of Catholicism. They would they did rosary together. They didn't eat meat on Fridays during Lent and they went to mass and everybody was confirmed and all the things. And they had a big Irish Catholic, Irish American Catholic community in Denver that they all spent time with. My mom still plays bridge now, 70 years later with all the same women that were in that neighborhood and raising their kids together and going to the same parish. When I came along and when I was about three years old, my father got a book contract to write about the second Vatican council from the Denver Catholic register. So he was commissioned to write this book about all these big changes in the Catholic church, right? Where they stopped speaking in Latin, where the priest started facing the congregation. And so my parents decided for a big adventure to sell the house and move the family to Rome so he could do his research there. As he got into the research of the institution of the Catholic Church, he would share what he was learning with my mom, and they lost their faith because they saw how much it was institutionalized and wasn't about spirituality. And so then as I was coming into my own and growing up, I didn't do all the same things that my siblings did. I was not confirmed. I had my first communion, but I didn't do all the other sacraments. My parents didn't make me go to Catholic school like all of my siblings went to. I went to public school, which I think set me on a trajectory to where I am today. And so that was something that was a big deal for our family. My father stopped taking communion, you know, so all that. So religion went away. But when I think about my spirituality and what shaped me as a person who really cares deeply about humanity and community is my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom, we call her Nanny. And I actually dedicated the book to her. So the first page, you can see how I talk about Nanny. She did something that has always stuck with me, which is when an ambulance would go by, when she would hear it, when we were at the house, she would babysit me a lot. She would go and stand at the door, open up the door and look out the window and say a prayer every time an ambulance went by for the people who needed that ambulance. That had way more effect on me and who I wanted to be as a person than any mass that I've ever been to. 
That's amazing to hear that. I also was raised Catholic. It was when I was 18 I first went to Quaker meeting, but I checked out a lot of other things. And about four or five years later, I decided Quaker was the right path for me. But it was Latin Mass for me up until the age of 10. But I think that having had that experience of Latin Mass prepared me to be a Quaker because the silent worship, the kind of meditative thing that Quakers do— Having sat through Latin Mass where you don't know the words, it is a meditative alternate way of hearing. So that's very interesting for both of you. And I don't think in the book, either of the main characters, DeAndrea or Rebecca, I don't think either one of them mentions specific religion. There's meditation and yoga going on, of course. Was that intentional or would that have had a place in the book? I know it was intentional on my part. I think we're grappling with so many different topics and challenges, right? And I I personally did not want religion to be a distraction with my character. I wanted any reader to be able to see themselves independent of religion. I think that was really important to me, especially for this Black character, because if I had her rooted in a particular religion or faith, like if I did have her as Southern Baptist, that just changes the whole dynamic of the story and what her life would have looked like during that year, <laughs> right? Like there would have been a, a lot of church, a lot of prayer, a lot of, you know, and like, I just didn't want it to be a distraction. And so we purposefully do not mention it. We don't not say we're not mentioning it, right? Like it's left up to the reader to assume and allow these characters and their families to have their own sort of religious journey independent of the narratives in the book. And with Rebecca, she sort of is devoid of spirituality, though she is trying to attain peace (laughs) through (laughs) capitalism. (laughs) You know, she has all these ideas She really wants to find peace, but she's actually not doing a lot of the internal work to really do self-reflection and have calm in her life. And so there's really no time for any of that, except that she knows she wants it. She needs something because she just wants to slow down and she doesn't want to, you know, be so frantic all the time. She realizes that she is, except with the wealth that she has and what she has acquired and she wants to maintain it, not lose it and not, and is always feeling like she doesn't belong, that she then spends more money and picks up gimmicks on things that are supposed to calm her down. And that is the only kind of spiritual path that she is on in the book. (laughs) I have to start out by saying that, Christine, I'm intimidated by you, not because you're black, but because (laughs) you've got your bachelor, master's degrees, African-American studies, and your JD in general law. I was married, by the way, to a lawyer in my first marriage. The places you served as managing director and as executive director, you seem so talented beyond my ability that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to relate to you even remotely. When I grow up, up, I hope I'll catch (laughs) up with you. No, that is not true at all. Those are just degrees, little moments in time where I studied particular topics. I mean, I think for so many people, and I'm seeing it even with my own daughter, who's now in college, I mean, some of the greatest lessons I have ever learned have been outside of the classroom. So yeah, I mean, I'm grateful to have had those experiences and those degrees and the doors that they opened for me. But It is my experiences with life that I think have have shaped me into the person who I am. So please don't 
please don't think that. <laughs> well, actually, I was partly joking, fun of myself, <laughs> but I was truly impressed by your resume and the books that you've written, the vast variety of them. I think that's great richness coming out of that. And of course, I, it's not easy to intimidate me because I've got white male privilege, which <laughs> which means... <laughs> I could talk to someone with 20 degrees, and even if I'm a plumber, that means my voice should carry more weight. I do know how it works in our society. I'm so grateful that you are aware of your privilege. A lot of the conversations that Catherine and I have are getting people to understand that it is not your fault that you were born white and you have this privilege, right? Like we want to get you to like, I love that sometimes, and this is what we try and show through the book, sometimes those conversations and the way that we can meet each other and really, you know, like, let's just establish the playing field here is through levity. Right. And so getting people to talk about some of these difficult topics and uncomfortable things in order for us to really address them, we have to be able to talk about them. So I love that you were able to share that so jovially. Catherine, anything you want to add there? No, no, exactly that. If we can joke in that way and have a familiarity in our in, uh, the way that we talk about race, then it frees up our headspace and our energy to have the much harder conversations, which are the ones that we need to have when we're talking about the ways that the systems and policies and practices around us are actually inequitable. And that takes a lot of work and thinking and hard, hard conversations. So we need to be able to breathe a little bit and joke around. I have a life experience that was extremely valuable to me that helped move me in a different direction from, I mean, I was raised in small town America in Wisconsin, basically all white town kind of thing. So I had the Rolling Hills experience, though not as affluent because I came from a very working class family with 12 kids, a good Catholic family, right? So I tell you, I shocked my father in particular, my mother died when I was nine. I shocked my father when I went in the Peace Corps and then lived in Black Africa for two years. And I have to tell you something very nasty that I did. I was writing a letter home to my younger sister, who was still at home going to grade school, and they had a chapter and class on Africa. So she wanted to ask me some things about Togo, where I lived. And so I wrote back saying some things that she could say in class. And then at the end, I knew that my parents would see this letter. I said, oh, by the way, I've been going out with a girl from a, a village not too far from here. And who knows, but she could be coming back to Wisconsin with me. Now, what I said was true. But what I didn't say was that it was a white Peace Corps volunteer. I did that particularly to goose my father because I was nasty son, I think. Did it work? Oh, yes, yes. I had them worried, and they should have been. And so having lived in my village as the one white person there, where everybody else was black, I still had white privilege. I was a teacher at the lycée there and all. But at one point, there was a kind of protest because there had been an assassination attempt on the dictator, the president, and everybody had to spontaneously rise up and say, oh, we love our dictator. And the official language being used was that the guy who was going to assassinate the dictator, who was himself Togolese, was put up to it by colonists. So the outcry went out down with the colonists. 
So I had people marching down yelling against colonists as I am the one white person in the town. I'll tell you, that's an experience. And I don't think that I was ever really in danger. They knew me. We, I lived alongside. It was all good that way. But it does change one's viewpoint on life. And I counted on my neighbors who were all black. And, so, and I also got to see other forms of racism between them by the different tribes they were. So I think it helped me see more clearly what's in me and what's in the place I was raised up. And I think if people read Rebecca, not Becky, they will get an idea of some of those portions of it. I love Togo. I've been to Togo, by the way. I've been to Lome. I went from Lome to Ghana to Benin. I did like the whole sort of um, tour of that of that western part of Africa. I was doing a home going during 2019. It was just the most magical trip of my life, and so interesting that you mentioned the Peace Corps because you can still see remnants of some of the schools and churches and things that were built during that time. And you can see how heavy the presence was in Western Africa during that time. But yeah, Lome is a beautiful, beautiful place. And I would have loved to take you out to Tabligbo, my village, where it's only a 45-minute or hour-long drive from Lome, but it gets you out in the other portion of the country. Lome is very intercultural. It's got enough tourists and everybody coming by. Tabligbo is not like that. I was in the village. I wonder if we drove by it. I mean, because we had to drive a lot of it. It was just beautiful. It was very rural and it was just, it was lovely. Anyway, it's very rare that you hear that someone has been to Togo. So I just thought that was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When Terry pitched this book to me that I should interview you, one of the points she made was that it had some joyful, happy, optimistic outlook on interracial friendships, which are way too few in our country. So were you two friends for a long time, a little time? How did that come about? So we met because when Christine was working at the Center for Anti-Racist uh, Policy and Research at American University, I was also working in anti-racism education. And with my documentary film, I'm Not Racist, Am I? I screened it with Christine's organization for a big event that they were doing. And through that work, we became friends after that. We stayed in touch. And then just, you know, once the pandemic hit, we became even closer. We were spending a lot of time on Zoom together, <laughs> kind of potted up. And it was in that time that we started talking about collaborating on the book together. Yeah. And who pitched the idea originally of writing a book together? Because, you know, after all, Christine, you've written so many books and you're taking a chance on a, a, another person being your co-writer. Yeah, but, you know, I knew her work ethic because I had had an opportunity to work with her as a colleague before she became a friend. And because she was a friend, I knew her heart. You know what I mean? So there was a, it wasn't like I was just like randomly picking a co-author when the idea sort of came about to write about this in response to what was happening in the country during that time and really wanting to get folks to have these conversations that we're talking about. It was actually my agent who pitched the idea because I was like, I'm so busy. I have so many other things to write. And she said, uh, is there anyone who you would write this book with? 
And the first person that came to mind was Catherine. And Catherine has a degree in journalism. And she had mentioned to me before that she wanted to write a book. And my friends that know me know, you can't tell me you want to do something. And then I, you know, the opportunity comes, I'm going to be like, oh, remember you said you wanted to write a book? It's time, you know? Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was really taking a chance. I mean, I, I knew that Catherine was more than capable and competent to take on this role. I think I was just overwhelmed and I'm still just so impressed with how she just rose to the occasion because writing a book is no easy thing and co-authoring a book is even more challenging. And, you know, I feel so bad because she faced like every sort of possible hurdle that could happen in publishing, like all at one time. Mine was like read out, you know, it's like, yeah, at some point you're going to lose an editor. Very rarely happens on your first book. Yeah, at some point the deadline is going to get pushed. Very rarely happens on your first book, you know? So she just went through like, every possible publishing sort of challenge while working on this book. And just, there were so many times where I was just like, I knew I picked the right, I knew it. I knew, you know what I mean? I'm just so impressed and I'm so grateful for you, Catherine. I mean, I know I say this all the time. We talk about this all the time, but yeah, this book would be a very different book if we didn't write it together. And I think we're both seeing just how powerful having our interracial friendship are being colleagues and really being able to speak to this work, like we're seeing just how important it is. So I'm just incredibly grateful. Yeah. And I mean, Christine believed in me before I believed in myself <laughs> writing, to write a novel because I, I was doing journalism. So I'm supposed to tell the truth, right? And it felt like, oh, but then I'm making things up if we're doing fiction. And, and I, I wanted to do it, but I was so scared. And then as we started getting into it, I realized, oh, this isn't not telling the truth. It is using our imagination, but we got at a lot of truth through these characters' lives and the experiences they were having. And it also felt kind of divine intervention because when Christine introduced me to her agent, I actually went to middle school and high school with her. And we hadn't seen each other since like 1989. And we weren't even really, we didn't know each other. She was a year ahead of me in school, but I recognized her name and we just, we grew up together in Denver and now she lives you know, in New York with this literary agency and knew Christine. I mean, there was no reason for this connection to have happened. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Yeah, it was definitely some divine providence there. Cause you know, I was like, in order to do this book deal, like you have to have an agent. And I was like, I know my agent will love you. And I was like, her name is, you know, and I'm giving her her name and she's like, and then she calls me after she's like, you are not going to believe this, you know? And it was just, yeah. So it was, it was, it was meant to be. And Again, I'm just so incredibly grateful that we were able to to rise to the occasion and, and I think even exceed our expectations, you know, when I think about what we had initially planned and the book that we were able to birth together. I'm just incredibly proud of us. I think it's probably important for our listeners that I say your full names again. As far as I'm concerned, it's just Christine and Catherine, but it is Christine Andrea Platt, and that's not the way you'll see her. You'll you'll find her website, I am Christine Platt, and I've got the link on northernspiritradio.org, so you don't have to remember all these things. And our other guest is Catherine Wigginton Green, and I've got a link to her as well. It's her full name. So it's important that people know you as co-authors of Rebecca, not Becky. I want to get into some of the nuts and bolts of the book. 
but only in mind that I am interested in anti-racist work. I am in interracial friendships. I am interested in helping move our country in a better, more healing direction and our world. And so, again, Rebecca, not Becky, when you wrote the book, you've got the chapters entitled with the different main characters' names, DeAndrea and Rebecca, as the other chapters. You're going back and forth. Did you write them racially? <laughs> that is to say, did the white person write for Rebecca? Did, I don't know. You could have done it backwards. Uh, no, we did not. We could have, but we didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> I write um, DeAndrea's chapters and Catherine writes Rebecca's chapters. But I think something that's pretty funny and that other readers and listeners have enjoyed learning about is that even though we wrote our respective chapters and stories, one of the things that we made sure to consult each other on was dialogue, right? Because what we found is, you know, when the characters would interact in my chapter, I would think that I'm sounding like Rebecca in this dialogue. And Catherine would say like, she would never say that, you know, and I would be like, but a white woman would say that she'd be like, you know, and vice versa. And so yeah, we went off a lot to our respective corners to work on our chapters after we flushed out the outline in terms of like the path that we wanted the story to take. But it would be a lot of fun to come together and read our respective chapters to each other. And we would just like laugh, just laugh and laugh and laugh. But it was always that dialogue. And I think Towards the end of the process, right, we got to a place where I would say, I'm just going to leave a placeholder here for what Rebecca would say. (laughs) I just gave up on trying to talk like her. Yeah. And I would try and have DeAndre, I made her so formal when I would have her dialogue in my chapters and the Rebecca chapters. And Christine was like, that's not what she, like, she's not going to sound like that. But I was so worried about getting it wrong that I just made it like the Queen's English, uh, which is not (laughs) One of the experience I had when my son went to college, he he was in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area. And so all of a sudden, very much in comparison to what he was experiencing here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, there was a lot of interracial things. At one point, he was serving uh, food in cafeteria kind of thing. And uh, he was doing it in a later session when the sports players came in, basketball, football folks coming through, and a lot of them were black. And he to- he intimated to me that a lot of times he couldn't understand them. And I said, you can't understand them? Why not? He says, well, you know, Ebonics. And he didn't do it. And I was aware sometimes that DeAndre was speaking in language that would be foreign to me. And mind you, I did perhaps understand Eve better than I understand Ebonics. Or- yeah, yeah, no. And that was intentional, right? And I think we wanted our characters to be authentic. Right. And so DeAndre is from the South and there is a very different type of black vernacular that is spoken in the South between black folks. Right. And, and a lot of that, it, it's remnants of the South. It's remnants from slavery. It's a part of our culture. And I didn't want to water that down. I didn't want to over explain. And what we found is that readers appreciate that. Right. I, of course, you know, black and brown readers, they appreciate it. This, you know, this is a, a familiarity and it makes the characters be more real. But white readers as well are able to sort of like, hmm, let me learn something here, right? Like these are all opportunities to be sort of teachable moments. And 
you know, even in Togo, right? Like there may be, even be language and remnants of what we are speaking here that are ancestral, right? Things that are carried over from the Caribbean and all of what we're experiencing, at least people of the African diaspora, is the result, lasting implications of the transatlantic slave trade. And we have to acknowledge that, we have to hold on to that. And it is not something that we are ashamed of. It's something that we're very proud of. And I wanted to make sure that was woven into DeAndrea's chapters. And it was very effectively done. I have to take issue with one thing, and that is part of the problem of being a white male in our country is that I'm male. And that in part means both of your characters are women. And women in our country are raised with a very different way of relating to other people than men are. When I was in college, I was quite aware of uh, my girlfriend who lived in a woman's dorm and they're worried about the roommate of someone that they want to hang around with and we can't hang around without hanging around with her. The guys on my floor in the dorm, it's like, I, I don't even know if I know my roommate. It doesn't matter. He can take care of himself. And that cultural difference in terms of gender was very prominent in the book from my eyes. Because you've got both the husbands, Malik and Todd, I think, that they're on a different place than their wives are. And I found it hard to relate to the women somehow because it's like, no, just tell them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I have to go through this. Uh, Rebecca in particular is ready to be judged and figure she's going to make a mistake and I can't do anything right. DeAndrea had a more salty approach to things that I found more healthy. But <laughs> uh, in, in any case, both of them uh, being very aware of, oh, what will people think about my house or what will people think about my kid, how my kid's dressed and all of this. Uh, that was very different for me as a male being welcomed into the female. But I think that's authentic. Yeah, for sure. Catherine, I mean, I, we, we had a lot of conversation around Todd as a character. And so I would love for you to share a little bit about that too. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, Mark, about that, because, you know, Rebecca has all of this angst about what her daughter says to her early in the book about, well, but we don't care about racial diversity, you know, and Rebecca just internalizes this and sees it as a failure of her motherhood. And Rebecca has done the bulk of the work around trying to educate her children about race. And as she does the bulk of the labor uh, for everything in the house, I mean, her husband, you know, he works a demanding job and he earns a, an income that allows them to live in the ways that they do. But she takes on everything else from the kids' activities to the family's healthcare appointments to the running the household. And she's also a really kind of just anxious person. And so she does dissect everything. And she's really, really in her head about all the things. And that is very realistic for a lot of women that we hold a lot, we carry a lot, whether it is imposed upon us or not. But I think a lot of it is imposed upon us and we take it on. And Todd can just say to her like, well, yeah, we don't really have a lot of black friends and not be he doesn't see that as a failure of his existence and his manhood. Whereas Rebecca thinks that she is failing as a community member and as a parent and as a friend by not doing enough. And that is, I think, a difference between a lot of men and women that we don't always talk about. So I'm glad you brought it up. 
I would say, uh, because being the person I am at this point in my life, why would I not want to have black friends and Arab friends and Chinese friends? Because as far as I'm concerned, it does two things. It makes my life richer. I love cultural diversity, a richness that I, I see out there. I love the food of the world and so on. And number two, it's important to me that everyone feel welcome. And I may do it wrong, but you can tell me and I will learn. I don't have to be defensive about that because I know I mess up. So that's easy for me. And so watching Rebecca torture herself. But I also have to say that early on in the book, or at least even halfway through the book, I was not optimistic for their friendship. Good. I, DeAndrea didn't look to me like she was going to be able to allow this one to go. She had a lot of prejudices about this white this was strong stuff going on. Yeah, there. I mean, I think what DeAndrea embodied is what a lot of Black women have are this fear of white women, this mistrust of white women. And this comes from lived experiences that they've had, stories that were passed down to them, things that were shared, right? And so they come with a lot of preconceived notions about what it is this white woman might do, right? It is very much from this place of protection. Right. And again, I think so much of this, we have to remember the historical context of race and racism in this country. Right. And so a lot of the dismantling that we talk about, it has to start within ourselves. It means I have to challenge myself and say, okay, I know what I heard growing up. I know what I saw growing up. I know this one white woman that did me wrong, but the same way we don't want all black people to be seen as a monolith. We have to have that same sort of approach to white folks, right? And so I think that is what I really wanted to show with that character, which is what does that process look like of getting to a place where you have what you consider justifiable reasons to not trust white women and to get to a place where, okay, maybe we're not kumbaya by the end of the book, but like I am at least open and, and accepting and willing to see you as beyond just a white woman, which is all that DeAndrea wanted from Rebecca is to just see me beyond just this black person who has just moved to your neighborhood. So I'm really glad that you saw that you felt that, right? I wanted readers to feel that. I wanted them to be like, yo, I wish Rebecca would just like leave her alone. This is not going to happen, girl. <laughs> like y'all are not going to be friends, <laughs> right? Catherine, do you want to jump in? Because we we struggled with that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe even when we first were conceptualizing the story in our minds, we maybe had them becoming friends sooner or, or that was a thought maybe, or maybe that was just me. It could have been just me. And so I remember thinking like, oh yeah, this isn't making sense. Like they're not going to become fast friends right away. This isn't going to be a story about their friendship. It's more of a story about how can we find one another? How could friendship become possible? rather than, oh, let's tell a story about this friendship. When I see in the book, when Isabella and Nina, I mean, just talking about, oh, we're best friends already. And it's so hopeful. I, I assume maybe you, one of you had those kind of friends. And I was afraid in the book that they were going to get torn apart too, in part by their parents. I mean, because there was fears in both directions that way. 
at the same time my heart was dancing, my heart was cringing. (laughs) Nina definitely represents a lot of my daughter. And again, you know, remembering that this is, it's just a different time. And I know it's one generation, but you see how much change can happen in one generation through your children. And my daughter always had interracial friendships because she didn't grow up in a segregated city like I did, right? So like, that's all she knows. And I fostered an environment where that was welcomed. And I think this is what happens a lot of times. You set out to be an anti-racist parent, right? And you're doing all these things and you're saying all these things and you're seeing your child move through the world in a certain way. But then it's that one thing that challenges you. It's the sleepover. Oh, wait, I thought I was good, but now we're going just a little too far. You know, like, I'm fine with y'all playing at school and everything, but like a sleepover, you know? And so, I don't know, Catherine, what what do you think? Because I I feel like there is a, that's a common sort of thread, I think, between just mothering and parenting. Yeah. Well, you know what, for me, when I think about interracial friendships, I mentioned my grandmother, Nanny, who's in the book dedication, but my other grandmother, Lizzie, also suffered from dementia and my mother took care of her in her final days as well. But before she died, uh, she had been paying my tuition at the at Christ the King at the Catholic school that I went to through fourth grade. And that was a very homogenous space. Everybody was Catholic. And everybody except for two students who were from South America were white, Western European white people. And that was my experience. I didn't know really any other people of color or anything in our neighborhood, nothing. And then when my grandmother died, I went to public school. And even though it was Denver, Colorado, which doesn't have a lot of racial diversity in general, but the public school system is predominantly black and brown. And so I was the first person in my family to go to public school that young and to have friends of different races. And I remember, you know, when I was in the Catholic school, I had a hard time. I felt like there were some mean girls there. I didn't have a lot of friends. It was a really hard experience for me. I remember being unhappy and calling, like faking being sick a lot when I was that age to not go to school. And then when I switched to public school, everyone was so nice to me and welcoming. And I was starting fifth grade in a brand new school where all these kids had already gone to school together. And I would come home and I would talk about my friends who taught me how to jump double dutch at recess. And I, you know, I'd want to hang out with them um, outside of school. And when I would mention their names, their names were funny to my family and they were making fun of them for that. And I did not understand that as a young person. I thought, well, that's those are their names. Why are you making fun of them? And for me, these were the first people who were being nice to me <laughs> in my life. <laughs> uh, not the first people. I had a couple of other good friends before this, but it was really a, like I felt part of a community and really accepted and welcomed in that. And that changed the rest of my life. And then when I think about what that means for my children now, I do try to just make sure that they're around as many different kinds of people as possible. And that I don't put a lot of that weight on there. And like Rebecca, there are times where, you know, I have regrets in my life of ways that I've messed up and caused harm. I don't have the same backstory that Rebecca has in terms of her friendships from grade school, but I do know a lot of people who hold on to things that they have done in the past that have hurt people and they have a hard time moving away from them. And in the wake of George Floyd, I had a friend, a black man who is my age in his mid forties. And he was hearing from everybody from his childhood who was white, wanting to talk about race all of a sudden in a way they had ignored it before. He heard from his eighth grade girlfriend who wanted to express her condolences for George Floyd to him. <laughs> he had spoken to her. They were 13. So it wasn't just because he was hot and she wanted to get back with him. Yeah. She wanted to like bring that back up. Yeah. 
So that was all happening. And so that comes up in the book as well, that Rebecca's trying to like make amends everywhere that she can. That is based in not only my own experiences, but people I knew. My perspective, and I'm happy to have both of you take issue with this, is that shame is not helpful. I've been part of, you know, racism 101 courses and dealing with this. And I think it's true almost uniformly that shame is not helpful. Compassion and listening are helpful. So someone who's motivated to sit down, who's willing to. But if you come up with shame, usually you end up putting stuff on other people because of your shame. And I don't know how most people get past shame because it's a very important cultural tool for many cultures in the world. What's your perspective on that, either of you, Catherine or Christine? I'll just jump in and really quickly say, I mean, I have found it to be a very ineffective (laughs) sort of pool when it comes to this type of work. I know that there's a lot of conversations around, do we call someone out? Do we call someone in? My default is to call in before I call out, right? I mean, I think that you can really get through and have more effective communication with a calling in rather than a calling out. Calling out is rooted in that shame, right? In shaming another person and embarrassing another person, hopefully to an extent that they'll apologize or do whatever, fill in the blank. And so it is not my sort of approach to this work or having um, conversations or letting someone know that what they did was hurtful or behaved inappropriately. I think, though, I lead more with giving others and myself grace. You'll hear me say that a lot. (laughs) And that is because I just think just overall, we're way too hard on ourselves and we're way too hard on others. And part of learning means making mistakes. That is, we understand it in every other aspect (laughs) of learning, but somehow when it comes to just a few things, right, that people find unconscionable, right? It's like, oh, but you can't make a mistake. You can make every other mistake, but you can't make a mistake about race. Don't do that, right? And it's just not, we, we have to extend ourselves some grace. And I think when we learn to do that for ourselves, it's much easier for us to do that for others. Yes, 100%. We have to be able to recognize that and have that grace for ourselves. I think our ability to have grace with other people and forgiveness is predicated, dependent on the fact that we can do that for ourselves. I find that when we are shaming somebody else, that is all about our own shame. And if I'm feeling shame or ashamed of something, that can be useful if it's activating for me to then start to do some exploration and wondering what it was that I did that was causing me to feel that way. Same with guilt. You know, I mean, in the book, there's a conversation about white guilt, but I think guilt can be, you know, we've got to feel our feelings. So if the guilt is there, then we can get curious about the guilt and do better. I have to remind our listeners again, the book is Rebecca, Not Becky. It's co-written by Christine Platt and Catherine Wigington Green. Number one, before I read this book, I had never heard of the reference to a Becky. Of course, I know about Karens, right? Karens are pretty horrible. And there's endless videos about them, but I've never seen one about a Becky. And In terms of naming, I'm glad that neither of you is named Becky because that would have been a burden to carry. Karen would have been worse. I did notice, by the way, Christine, that you talked about one of your experiencing having marked you. So I took that as part of something about my name because I am a mark. (laughs) And one of the things, I don't know if it was intentional or just kind of random, 
but Rebecca's a white person. She's upper class. She's well off, right? Her last name is My Land. And talk about white supremacy embodied in her name. Was that intentional or was that just accidental? It was. And I have to give credit again to our agent. Early on when Emily and I were talking about the book, and this is before we had Catherine come on board, you know, we were just like tossing around names and and she was like, we knew we were going to use Rebecca. And she was like, Oh, what if her last name is Myland? And I was like, what? And she was like, my land, get it? And I was like, Oh, that's good. And so yeah. <laughs> I feel like Mark should get an award for catching that. Like most times we have to we have to tell folks that. But yeah, no, there are a lot of little Easter eggs that are throughout the book. <laughs> Do you think that after people read this book, that they will be better able to navigate the potentially disastrous waters of interracial friendships. Do you think that the things in there, I'm hopeful from it. And maybe you've had people who've read it already and said, yes, I now can have a white friend, you know, (laughs) as DeAndrea gets assigned by her therapist, right? Yeah. I think we should have more make a white friend challenges, have therapists sort of do that whenever these sort of issues come up. No, seriously, I'm hopeful. I mean, that is the goal, right? That through the telling of this story that folks will, again, give themselves some grace to make mistakes. Rebecca's not a perfect character and neither is DeAndrea, right? And to see them navigate this bumpy journey towards a comrade, right? Like, you know, and again, we also wanted to be very careful Catherine mentioned earlier, like, are they really going to be best friends right away? Friendship takes time and more than time, it takes trust, right? And so what we hope to show through this novel is how that trust is built over time. Another factor that I thought was really important in terms of dealing with other people, certainly race does play a strong part in how people sort themselves out here. I was very inspired, actually. Back in the early 90s, I would frequently travel to Toronto for work. And I would see people walking down the street, you know, four people walking together, and one would be Asian, one would be black, one's white, one is Hispanic. And it seemed to me that Toronto was much easier with mixing than Milwaukee, where I had lived before I moved to Eau Claire. Milwaukee, I think, is one of the most segregated cities of of the U.S. It was pretty bad. So this ability to have friends in a wider circle and to not impose walls between us because of that, color didn't seem to be a big deal there. But I wondered whether culture was a big deal. If you don't speak the same language, it's hard. And class, because of historical factors, more whites are rich. I mean, the average wealth of blacks and whites is vastly disparate in the United States. So it is hard to bridge class. It is hard to bridge culture sometimes. Did you think about those factors in terms of writing Rebecca, not Becky? (laughs) Yes, I think we tried to weave all that into the narrative. And I think it was one of the reasons why we did choose this fictional setting of Rolling Hills. It was one of the reasons why, yes, our characters are able to afford to live in this area, but they are first generation wealth. And like, there's a lot of weight and responsibility that comes with that regardless of your race 
or ethnicity, right? Because you're learning to navigate this new space. And so I think we tried to take all of these things into consideration. Catherine, you're nodding. I'll let you (laughs) jump in. All of that is part of it. And also showing that even when these women have in their minds, and especially in Rebecca's like transcended class, race still comes up. So having wealth isn't this moment where then we don't have to worry about these issues anymore. We still have these problems, even when money is not a limiting factor. I also had the question whether you, either one of you, believes that psychotherapy plays a role in getting rid of the damage we're both giving and getting in terms of racism. Malik, in particular, I think in the book, he's portrayed as having really changed his way because of therapy, really finding some healing there. And they're all related to therapy, especially because of the memory care issues and all of that kind of thing. Do you think therapy plays a role in the racial healing, reconstruction, building friends interracially? I think if you are harboring some deep-rooted prejudices and bias and, you know, have some fears, whether they're substantiated or not based on your experiences, I do think therapy can be helpful. One of the reasons why I introduced therapy with both of my characters is that I wanted to erase the stigma that Black folks don't go to therapy. I wanted to show that, yes, we are very much aware of how therapy can be helpful. And you see it across their entire dynamic, right? With DeAndrea, yes, she has this make a white friend challenge, right? But what she's really in therapy for is, listen, I'm moving. This is a challenge. My mother-in-law unexpectedly now has dementia. Like she's in therapy to sort of work through a lot of the challenges that she is having and trying to navigate in life. And I think naturally, race will come up if that is a part of what you're trying to navigate and what you're struggling with. And I do think therapy can be helpful, because this is a licensed practitioner that can help you sort of talk through, work through and get to the root cause of what is really challenging you so that you can hopefully move beyond that. And sometimes we're able to do that work with our friends or through reading a book, hopefully a book like Rebecca, not Becky, but sometimes it does require some more professional guidance. And I'm a big fan of therapy. I was wondering if there's the rocky road toward the friendship of Rebecca and DeAndrea, but there is kind of a easy camaraderie, at least between Todd and Malik. They can hang out together and they don't have to go to therapy or do any of that kind of stuff. The women are going to do the hard way. But I think it's also, you know, only skin deep, their camaraderie, perhaps. I don't know if that's what you were intending to portray, but it's the impression I had. As a male, I would say, yeah, it's kind of nice that as males, we can just kind of get along, go along and we'll do it. But I don't know if it's your perception that that means that the deep issues don't get dealt with. I'll just jump in and say, I know there have been a lot of studies that have been coming out lately about the loneliness of men and the fact that they don't have these deep connections with their friends, right? Yeah, the guys just go play golf together, right? And you see that like when DeAndre is like, oh, Malik, how did it go, right? Or Becky's asking Todd, how did it go? You know, it's like, yeah, he's cool. They don't go deeper, right? And I think what women 
not all women, of course, but what a lot of women seek in friendship is that deep connection. And I remember Michelle Obama saying, you know, like, of course, she loves her husband, she loves Barack, but it is her girlfriends that have gotten her through life. And I think like that for women, friendship for us is like sisterhood. And I think it does go back to what Catherine said earlier, which is we are carrying so much and so much of it is in our heads and so much of it is on our backs in terms of like what we have to do. And there is a shared understanding and respect and a willingness to lighten that load between women. And those studies have been, I find them pretty fascinating. And I do know, I know a handful of men that have deep connected friendships, but not many. And I think the studies confirm why that is problematic. And hopefully there'll be some change around that as well. Again, folks, we're talking with Christine Platt and Catherine Wigington Green. The book is Rebecca, Not Becky. It's a fun novel. No, I shouldn't say fun. It is fun. It is fun. And it's got its challenges. Yeah. It has some of the feeling of just people relating and watching that. Uh, there aren't a lot of murders or anything. There are trauma moments in the book, but there's no big bombs going off or murders happening, any of that kind of thing. So it maybe will not be the thing that'll scare you and make you hide under your bed at night, but it will illumine your conscience to say, how am I behaving in relationship with other people? What's missing in my life that I could fill up and have a richer, better life for me and those around me? And I think that you've done a great job, both Christine and Catherine, in terms of giving us a story that's not too challenging, but is deeply engrossing. And for that, I thank you. Thank you. And for having us on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for reading and talking about it. And folks, I'll have a link so you can track down the book, Rebecca, Not Becky, and also connect with Catherine Wigington Green. That's her website, dot com. And I am Christine Platt.com. I've got the link to that as well. You'll want to check out Christine's other books, and you'll want to check out the documentary that Catherine made. I'm not racist. Am I? I watched the trailer online and I watched another clip on it. And I think that's amazing work that you've been doing, Catherine. And both of you together are making this world such a better place. I'm so glad I live in this world with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Follow the links on northernspiritradio.org. Learn more, enrich yourself more, have a good time, and join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh